Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is a conversation with Mark Sinnott. Mark is a climber, adventurer, writer, author. He's a member of the North Face athlete team. Um, and he has just released a book today, April 13th, that is called The Third Pole. And it's about a search for the remains of Sandy Irving on Mount Everest. It's an absolutely remarkable book. So um, we talk a lot about that. This one is an epic. It was about two hours and listening to Mark's stories, it felt like it was about 30 minutes. It's absolutely awesome. And we hope that you guys enjoy it as much as we did. It was just an absolutely remarkable conversation. And Mark is such a cool, cool person who's done some really, really amazing things. But we've read the book, it's spectacular. And uh, it's about it's about a whole bunch of different things and uh, and this really, really amazing search and how it came about. So we really appreciate Mark spending some time with us and uh, sharing the, us sharing the story, but we could probably do another two hours with him and hear about a whole bunch of other things. So it was really, really great. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Black Bibs. TheBlackBibs.com is home to unbranded and affordable cycling apparel. The Black Bibs is where you can get the now legendary $40 bib shorts plus ultralight jerseys and solid colors. The Black Bibs will make you feel like a rolling billboard. Check out TheBlackBibs.com if you want to be comfortable, cool, and most importantly, be yourself. I've been done a couple of uh, rides in the Black Bibs. They're so great. They're as good as any bibs I've ever owned. I honestly can't believe the price. So check them out at TheBlackBibs.com. This episode is also brought to you by the State Bicycle Company. They have just released their race-ready gravel machine at an accessible price. It's the 6061 All-Road featuring a durable aluminum frame, lightweight carbon fiber fork, and your choice of wheels. So they have a 700C with a slicker tire and a 650B with knobbier tires. It comes with an 11-speed drivetrain and disc brakes. It is one of the most versatile bikes you will find anywhere. I can attest to that. We have been riding these bikes uh, with both wheel sets on and off. It's a crazy bike, crazy value. And it was just named one of the bicycles of the year by Bicycling Magazine, which is really, really cool. So congratulations, State Bike Co. Uh, Check out statebicycle.com to order yours today or to find a dealer near you. You can use code, if you're ordering online, you can use code ADVENTUREAUDIO, all one word, for free shipping. They also sell a whole bunch of different swag and gear and fixed gear bikes and a bunch of cool stuff. So check them out at statebicycle.com. On to this fantastic conversation with Mark Sennett. Hey, Mark. How's it going, dude? Good to see you, buddy. Same here, man. So cool. We're finally doing this. Sorry it took you guys however long it was. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. It's been, um, I don't know, a a lot of anticipation. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It's it's actually worked out better, though, with with the timing of the book. So it's great. No, it's true. It is. It's awesome. And, um, I I I get you know a lot more motivated when um, when we get to this point here where it's like crunch time and um, I'm super psyched to talk to you guys. But in general, this period where it's all about marketing and promotion is definitely my least favorite part of the process. Even though it's horrible to actually have to write a book. 
I, I enjoy it in its own sick way in the same way I like going on expeditions and just doing stupid shit, you know, that I <laughs> should probably stop doing soon. Oh, I don't know yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, this thing's this thing's awesome, man. I, I'm, you know, I'm a slow and methodical uh, reader, Mark, so I'm not all the way through it. I, okay. I, but, uh, man, this is incredible. I incredible. appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Yeah. Um, you reading it. Um, oh yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, I think it gets better as it goes, and um, and I'm not sure, but I think it's better than my last book. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel that way, but uh, so far, like every person who's read it has has said it's better. And, um, and so I'm psyched on that because that was my goal. And, um, I feel like we all need to be going like this, you know, otherwise yeah, what's, what's happening, you know, this or this, this is not sure. yeah. what's happening with my climbing right now, sure. right. <laughs> I'm right. Right. Up for it, you know, with some of these intellectual pursuits, I guess you could call them. Yeah. So yeah. was was writing the first book, did you have that, you know, that sort of feeling after you do something epic, even if, it, even if it's like a single day expedition or something where you're just like, I'm so glad I did that and I'm never going to do it again. And then it yeah. slowly creeps back in that you want to do it. Or did you always know you'd write multiple books? Well, um, no, I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't know um, that I would. At, at first, I guess I didn't know. But um, that first one was such a crazy story that it 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 just it sort of became clear fairly early on in the process that it was a story that that people were going to want to hear, and yeah. and then it became obvious that it was going to give me a springboard if I wanted to to do it again, um, which it did. And, um, and, you know, I've always been a writer, you know, ever since I got out of college, basically, I started doing this and, uh, you know, now I'm 51 years old and I'm like really actually a writer, I think at this point, yeah. <laughs> but I've always done it, you know, just sort of like on the side, but now I'm really devoted to it and I'm doing it full time. And, um, like I said, it's, it's heinous, but, but I like, I like heinous things, I think. So, um, so you've I'm always gonna... been a storyteller, right? I would say, you know, you've been good at telling stories. I mean, since I met you way back, I don't know when we were seven, eight years old and on the wildcat ski team, you know, yeah, you've been good at telling idea. stories, you know? I have no idea where that comes from, but I think that I, well, I just have um, sort of an, an innate need to um, entertain people. And, and I just, that's how I figured out to do it. I think, you know, even from, from when I was young and, um, I don't, I don't know where that comes from exactly, but, uh, but this, 
this is an example of that. Yeah. That same thing, you know, just requiring way more effort to, to tell the stories, to tell this story, you know, the Everest story required, you know, I was just talking to someone about this, but, uh, the idea first germinated in October of 2017. And then I started scheming. And at first, it just, it seemed totally far-fetched. But I was really intrigued. And I, and I just kept um, kind of chewing on it. And now it's March of 2021. And we're right near the, you know, the end of, of this process of, of creating this thing. So, you know, I guess that is, um, God, three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yeah. What a process. Yeah. 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 And so then when I finally got the book, you know, I'm kind of holding it up and I'm like, damn, I hope, I hope this is good. I hope it was worth it. Cause, cause, uh, you know, you put in that much effort, you, you, you got to, uh, you got to come out of it, you know, with, with something worthwhile. Yeah. So tell us, how did the idea first come up? I think I read something about a blood pact of some sort with Tom. What is it? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Pollard. Pollard. Yeah, that? did I mention was... that in the book? Or no, you know, I did a little research, Mark, and uh, okay. yeah, he's. Got, I listened to your podcast with. with oh Tom. right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the blood yeah. Pact. yeah we we <laughs> for whatever reason I didn't mention the blood pact in the book. I don't think, but we called it. We called it the blood pact, and um, and I really do credit um tom with the inspiration for this whole thing and you know he's an old friend of mine and um he lives in um hearts hearts location now over in in bartlett but he did live in jackson so he's basically been my neighbor he's coming over tonight and we're gonna sit out on the deck and we're gonna drink some martinis and we're gonna and we're gonna hash some shit out you know um but he so he was uh, uh, you know obsessed with the the mystery of Mallory and Irvin and this question of of who really was the first to stand on the summit of Mount Everest for more than 20 years and he was part of the expedition in 1999 that found the remains of George George Mallory and that really, um, you know, was kind of a monumental thing in the history of mountaineering. And, um, and it's a story that, you know, people who follow this kind of stuff know well. Um, anyways, as a result of this history that he has with Everest, and he went back multiple times, and then he eventually climbed the mountain in 2016. And that was you know, and this is something I try to touch upon in the book is that was kind of ultimately where it all stemmed from was his own childhood desire to climb the mountain. And so he was doing a talk at, um, at Freiburg Academy over in Maine. And, 
and he was hitting me up and saying, Hey, you know, you got to come to my talk. Hmm. And the truth is that I'm actually pretty burned out on the, all the climbing stuff and going to climbing talks is like you going to like a talk about the tour de France or something. You might right. be busy that night, you know? <laughs> so, um, I was like, I don't know, man. And I was kind of blowing it off and he kept hitting me and he was pretty persistent. And, and then he, and then he said, yeah, well, you're going to be a guest of honor and this and that. And I didn't know what that meant, but I was like, well, okay, he's really keen. And then it ended up being a night where, you know, I um, was supposed to do something with my daughter, Lilla, who at the time was 2017. So that's four years ago. She was, so she was like 11 or 12 at the time. So I'm like, okay, we'll go to this Everest talk. And so we did. And I, I guess I didn't even really know what it was about, but it was Tom's whole story of Everest. And at a certain point, he's talking about the discovery of, of George Mallory and he's showing photos. And I'm sitting there, you know, with an 11 year old girl and she's looking at this photo of this old desiccated dead body. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, what have I done? Like, I mean, <laughs> this is off the rails <laughs> at an old dead body. And she's probably never seen anything like that. Most people haven't it's 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 kind of you know macabre um but anyway it, it it was a really well done and fascinating talk and afterward um i just i actually what happened was i was i i was talking tom called me afterwards to because he knows i do a lot of presentations and he said hey like beat me up a little bit and critique my talk and we started talking about it and as we did I and I was trying to give him advice on like what I thought would be a great story for him all of a sudden I just started riffing on this idea of of the Mallory Nervin story and what has been written about it and and you know if a journalist wanted to immerse themselves into the story to tell it in that way like new yorker magazine style how would they do that and what would what would it look like and i just started going off on this phone call and i was saying all this stuff to tom and then at a certain point i thought oh wait a second like this is a great idea i could be that guy <laughs> and and then the you know the other you know sort of interesting piece of the backstory is 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 that you know I, i'm a lifelong climber i started climbing you know basically when i was a kid i've been climbing ever since and mount everest it looms large really i think for a lot of people but especially people who are part of mountain culture and outdoor community and all that but for climbers it's really an iconic thing and um and it looms large in all of our imaginations regardless of what we really think about it but what you know on a personal level but as a young person when i first started getting into climbing of course i i was drawn to that i was kind of enthralled by the idea that's as that's as far as you can go like that's as high as you can climb that's it that's kind of the ultimate and but then as i as i came in, of age as a climber in the 1990s and the whole Everest commercial guiding industry was really growing. Um, the, there was this Everest stigma that started to grow up 
which I'm sure you guys know about and you probably feel a lot of that yourselves. But for me, in the 90s, which was when that really started to develop, that was also when I was a young idealistic climber in my 20s. And so me and a lot of climbers of my generation, but definitely my close peers and and the people that I climbed with, we all just said, nope, that's not it. Um, you know, that's not what this is all about. Um, it's, it's not really a worthy objective and we're not going to go in this direction with our climbing. And so, so instead I just went out and did all this obscure stuff that no one has ever heard of. Like most of the mountains that I've climbed, no one knows about, and they're not sort of significant in that way. And they're only known to people that are kind of like insiders in climbing and, and then eventually became a professional climber and so as part of that i'm constantly like telling my stories and i'm writing and 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 like you know we were talking about doing storytelling about these adventures and every time i'm doing it people are asking me oh have you done everest oh, what mm-hmm. do you think of everest oh hey right. and 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 uh and i had to just it's really hard to explain to sort of the lay person the nuances of why someone wouldn't be into that but I guess what I'm driving at here is deep down underneath all of that, I was still interested and I was still intrigued. And I think even though I wasn't really admitting it to myself, which is interesting because I really do try to go through life with my eyes wide open and to be honest with myself about everything that I possibly can be. I, I wasn't openly acknowledging the the fact that I was secretly hoping that someday the opportunity would come up because I was really intrigued and I was really interested in in the whole thing, the the the, the whole enterprise. Um, but more than anything, what is it like to be that high up? Yeah. What does it feel like? What does it look like? How does you know all all of that? What's it like to be way up on a ridge? Or, you know, sometimes I, I would think about um, what it would feel like to be nearing the summit and knowing that you were going to get there, but you were close and you weren't there yet. Kind of like that anticipation. Or maybe like Tyler would feel like when you've had the race of your life, and you haven't won yet, but you're gonna win, and you're close. And um, and I did think about that, and I actually dreamed about it. I never told anybody, and so so this is me just you know, this maybe even I think I said it this honestly in the book book, but uh, I I when when the opportunity finally came up. And I started going through the process and it started turning into this real thing that all kicked back in. And then when I got to the mountain and I saw it, we weren't even supposed to try to climb it or, or try to summit because that wasn't what we were there to do. You know, we were there to do this search and I saw the mountain and the first time it came out of the clouds and I saw the summit and I, and I just sort of said to myself, okay like no matter what i'm going there i'm going to the top <laughs> and nice. uh and in a, in a, in a i talk about this at the end of the book i do sometimes wonder what would happen if i hadn't made it 
it worked out like would i because i have this tendency to become kind of monomaniacal about stuff and it's and it's good and bad but it's driven a lot of the things that i've done in my life and i i've been able to move on because i told the story you know it's turned out well i think it's i'm really happy with how this has all turned out and i'm stoked you know that we all not all of us but some of us you know got up to the top but if but if i hadn't made it would i be scheming right now to go back i think there's there's a strong possibility that i would yeah yeah it sounds like it the answer to that question gives also gives you guys some insight into like you just asked me a simple thing, and I talked for like twenty minutes. <laughs> no, that was great. That's like what I do sometimes. I'm sorry. Can you? So you were what? I think you were up at twenty, maybe twenty-seven thousand feet, and then um, that storm came in with a, a swirl cloud or something. Can you tell us about that story where uh, and one of the tents got like blew right off the mountain? Yeah, that was actually on the North Pole. That was under North Cole. Okay. The North Cole is at 23,000 feet. 20. Okay. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of where the climb really begins, but you, you, you have to climb this ice face from advanced base camp to get up there. And advanced base camp's at 21,000 feet. And, and ABC, as we call it, is 12 miles from base camp. And you just, and you walk up a glacier. And that's, this is on the north side of Everest. That's the part that they do with the axe. So totally different from the south side where you have, you know, the Kumbu Glacier, which is crazy and chaotic and dangerous. And obviously you can't send yaks through that because it's all crevassed and there's seracs and ladders and all that kind of stuff. But on the north side, it's, it's basically a, a walking path. And... Um, and, and so you walk all the way up to this ice slope at the base of the north face. And you can essentially do that in your sneakers. And there, the climb starts. You go up 1,000 feet of snow and ice, and you get to this saddle. And you're at 7,000 meters. So you're, you're way up there, but you're, you know, there's fixed ropes. And at that point, you can escape you know, pretty easily um, as, as long as things are, you know, too crazy and um the way that it works is that that's essentially as high as anyone goes on their acclimatization rotations on the mountain and a normal um procedure is to go up to advanced base camp then go to the north call and if you can spend two nights at twenty-three thousand feet and then you come down and you go all the way to base camp and you recover and then that's it. And then you go back and you go for it and you try to get up the mountain. So we were on that um, climatization rotation at the North Cole and the weather forecast wasn't, wasn't great. Um, but we, we felt like where we were, which is we, we would camp and we would be climbing on the leeward side where we would be out of the wind, that it would be okay. Um, but there was a cyclone um, that was hitting India. It was, and it was called Fanny. 
and no one really knew exactly what the path of it was. Um, but depending on which way it, it went, it could either be kind of like a non-thing or it could pump super crazy winds in into the mountain. And I don't, I don't think anyone really knows exactly what happened, but essentially what you're dealing with on Everest weather-wise is uh, the jet stream and the, and the fact that the mountain is so high that it sticks into the jet stream. And the jet stream, I never knew this before the expedition, but it has um, kind of like two different, um, there's two different jet streams. I mean, I think there's multiple, but there's like in, right there, there's two different ones. And um, and they, they, they normally, they, they just hit Everest. And so the whole thing is about um, like waiting to the point where they move out of the way so so that there's no wind and you can go up and i think what happened that night that we were up there was that the the jet stream because of the like cyclonic effect of the storm it it just made a direct hit on the mountain and as a result of that it was you know it was it was just blasting the summit and then every once in a while, these little vortices would come off of it. And sort of like a catabatic wind, maybe, where, you know, the wind just goes down the, the face of the mountain. And um, so we were, we were in the tent, and, and, it was, and it was windy, and it was getting windier. Um, and you guys may have had nights like this in the mountains, but it's, it's something, you know, that, that I've, that I've experienced before where the fabric is like flapping like crazy. And then when it gets really gnarly, the, your tent will invert, Yeah. press you down into the, into the ground. If you have a good tent, it just like springs back afterwards. And, um, and I had definitely experienced that before. And we, we had that going on, and it's pretty scary when you're at that point, especially when you're up on Everest, and it's so windy. It gets to the point where it's so windy where you realize, like, I really don't want to go out of the tent right now. I wouldn't feel safe, you know, being not in a shelter, but it's really scary being in here because the tent's inverting, and it just kept building and building, and then during the night, you know, basically in the middle of the night, at one point, I I just heard this howl, and and I've done lots of stuff in the mountains, and I've experienced a lot of wind. I live right here at the base of Mount Washington, so I've seen a lot of crazy wind. I had never heard anything like this before. It was it was a scary, scary sound, and I mean nobody was communicating at this point, but if we were, we would have looked at each other and been like, what the hell is that sound? And it was the herald of this insane vortice of wind that I think had just spilled off the jet stream and was going like this, like straight down, <laughs> just like a missile coming for our tent. And when it hit, the tent inverted. And, but this time, um, it felt like some entity 
was pushing me down. I remember my head, it felt like there was a giant hand pushing my head into the ice, and I was on a uh, an air mattress. And so the air mattress was keeping me off the ground, and I, but I was sleeping on ice, and the, this hand was pushing me so hard that I remember feeling my temple pressing into the ice, like the pad wasn't even there anymore, and just thinking, holy shit, I've never felt anything like that. And then having it just hold and hold and hold and being like, holy shit, like this is what it feels like right before your tent blasts right off the mountain. This is the strongest wind that I have ever felt. And it did eventually release. And I don't know how long it was, but it was, it was, uh, it felt like an eternity. And when it did, the tent, the tent was like, okay, that's it. We've had it. (laughs) And then I heard the poles break. And then of course there was more wind. So as the wind kept hitting, now the tent's flapping like crazy, but the poles are broken and the jagged ends are going like Ginsu knives, like, <laughs> and like slicing oh. the fabric and everything. And uh, I guess it was before that, that one of my uh, my partners, this guy, Jim Hurst, he, he, he got out of his sleeping bag and put on his boots and got all his stuff on, like, I'm getting ready, like, you know, this is going to go bad. And... Um, and I, oh, we also all just felt like absolute shit because it was our, I guess it was, I think, yeah, I think it was our first rotation up to 23,000 feet. So terrible hangover like um, altitude um, symptoms. And um, and so just pulled the sleeping bag up over my head and just laid there, you know, um, for the rest of the night. And, um, and then in the morning, you know, this, this kind of thing continued, but there were no other gusts like that. Um, and this, this continued until the morning and in the morning it eased off. We're still getting, I think, hurricane gusts, but it, but it was longer in between. And when I, when I, I went out of the tent to see what was going on and I looked out at camp and it was completely shredded like shredded everything was shredded tents were gone there was at least one tent that was like 500 feet up in the air just flying around um and everybody was trying to evacuate and there was this group coming down the fixed line and i remember thinking wow that's really crazy they're just out there i was kind of huddled by the vestibule of our tent but they were trying to get the hell out of there and right then one of these gusts hit it blasted one of the people off their feet and you're right on the edge of this this thousand foot ice cliff and everybody's clipped into the same rope so when the one person went off they plucked everybody else off and they all went over the edge and then they were all dangling and we were sitting there and um the bottom end of the rope was anchored right next to where we were. And, you know, they they use these things called pickets. They're these big aluminum stakes, and you hammer them into the snow. And that guy, Jim, that I was telling you about, who had the worst night ever and was just moaning and groaning in the tent a few minutes later, suddenly, I, out of nowhere, he's running 
up the hill. You can't run at 23,000 feet when you're not acclimatized. But he was running, and he ran off, and he dove, and he hammered the picket back in right before it came out. And I think kind of saved those people, um, potentially. Um, but it was, it was a historic storm, and it made the news all over the world. And um, I don't know how hard the wind was blowing, but I'll say that um, I've spent a lot of time on Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and I've been in 100-mile-an-hour winds up there, yeah. and that felt like calm compared to what this was. Wow. So did that shake you? Like, you know, after that, like, did, were you doubting why you were up there? Or did you, were you just, yeah. you know, set yeah. on continuing? Well, what happens climbing and, you know, other things, sometimes you have an epic. Yeah. And oftentimes, I've had some other epics before. And some of them have been so bad. I had one in Alaska where I vowed to myself that if I survived, I would quit climbing and I would never do it again. This wasn't quite at that level, but it was bringing back those types of thoughts. Like, why the hell am I doing this? Um, the thing about, the thing about it is, I think you guys will understand this is that for a lot of us those feelings just dissipate very quickly and the, the time in Alaska where I said I was going to quit climbing by the next morning I once I was okay and I had a hot drink in my hand and I knew that I wasn't going to die I was looking around thinking okay well maybe we'll climb something else here and um and so it was like that too. We got out of there um, after, uh, you know, those people, some Sherpa, climbing Sherpas helped pull that back up onto the ridge. They went down and then we went down. And when we, we went all the way down to base camp. And then I think we might have even left base camp. Sure, maybe that was later. But you're, you're back. Quickly forget about it, and the determination kind of floods back in. Hey, uh, Pete, I think your uh, audio is a little messed up. Kind of making a lot of racket. Yeah, can you plug it? I guess there's a little bit of a uh, the, yeah. oh. like a buzzing. Yeah, can you hear it, Mark? I think it's Pete. How's that? I can hear uh, a buzzing. Oh, uh, oh not anymore. That's better. That's better? Okay. I think so. Yeah. Sorry, sorry guys. No do problem. I sound okay? You sound great. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then, then you kind of, then you kind of regrouped and, and started over, basically, Mark. Yeah, we started over. Um, what happened was that this is a simplified version of the story, but every everybody's 
waiting, you know, for this, for this weather window and every expedition hires a professional meteorologist and these guys, you know, they study the weather and they're experts on the weather in Everest and they're experts at like looking at the jet stream and predicting what it's going to do, like how it's going to undulate and sort of potentially move away from Everest. And typically what happens is when the monsoon starts to develop for complex reasons that, that I don't really understand, um, but it has to do with uh, temperature differentials. So as the temperature, as the temperature starts to warm, you know, as the monsoon builds, and it comes in towards Everest from the southwest. As as it moves in and starts to push against Everest, and you have this like big warm plug of air, it it changes the um, the whole dynamic with the jet stream. And this happens pretty much every time without without exception. It the 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 jet stream pushes off to the north. I, I believe it's to the north, and then it. And it gives you that weather window. And that's what you always hear about in late May. Um, usually there's little periods before that where it will move out of the way where people can like go up high on the mountain, where like the climbing Sherpas can go up and finish fixing the route and stuff like that. And people can get camps built. But this, this season, this spring of 2019, was the worst weather year ever. And so everything was delayed and everything was going slow. And by the time we got to this point, um, every, everybody was, everybody on the mountain, and um, I should know what this number is, but I think it's around, it was like around 300 people who were, who were trying to climb the mountain on the north side that season. It just worked out so that everybody was all um, sort of jammed up to go on this one. And the meteorologist predicted that there was going to be a weather window. You know, another, another thing that people might not understand is that there is financial pressure for expeditions to just get it done. Sure. Lost money. People pay a fixed amount to go and be part of an expedition. And if you can hit the first wet weather window and get out of there early, you know, you make a lot more money if you're an Everest outfitter. And it obviously, you know, they're most of them are making good decisions, but they're but that that does factor in, I believe. And so so the meteorologist predicted, okay, there's gonna be a weather window around May twenty second, twenty third. And as we're coming down from getting our asses kicked, everybody else is heading up. I'm trying to think if I'm getting this story right. Yeah, yeah, basically that was that's what was happening. And um, and so um, when 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 everybody else ended up, you know, vying for the summit, uh, I'm trying to remember this now. Like this is my story, but I have uh, divorced it from my mind for a little bit. When we got our asses kicked, um, let's see. 
Okay, yeah, we got our asses kicked. I'm screwing the story up a little bit. Oh, then, it's all good. This is great. Then we, we went back up, and when everybody else was, like, resting and preparing for the summit, we went back up so that we could try to fly drones from the North Coal. And that's a, a, a really important part of the story and was a really Im important part of our whole uh, project because we had come up with the idea of using drones to do the majority of the searching instead of having to do it all on foot like people had in the past. And that was something that had um, just within a year or two um, become a possibility. And the same, um, I guess it was the summer after, uh, you know, I went to Tom Pollard's lecture and I'd been working on this idea all along. I heard about the story of the uh, this Polish guy that, that skied down K2. And I saw the footage um, that his brother shot of him skiing off the summit, and what? And, and I ended up interviewing those guys. They're the uh, the, the Bargiel brothers out of Poland, and they, they they basically just picked up a a regular like recreational drone off the shelf at Polish Best Buy, and and then they they hacked it to turn off this like built-in governor that doesn't let it fly too high above where you are. And it's kind of a long story, but the shortened version is they went to K2, started it up. Andres is on the summit and Bartek is down in base camp, just hits the controller and sends the, the, the drone up 10,000 feet, just flies it from base camp to there's footage of the drone above Andres, and he's standing on the summit of K2 with his skis on. The drone's like 200 feet above his head. And the, and the, the summit of K2 is 28,200 feet, I think, 250 or something like that. So wow. I'm looking at that. I and mean, first of all, the footage is mind-blowing. And this guy skis off the summit of K2, like 10,000 vert all the way, skis the whole way, no repellents, like incredible. And I'm totally amazed but i'm thinking to myself holy shit here's a drone that's at like twenty-eight thousand five hundred feet if we could do what they did we could fly the drone all over and we could program it to just fly a grid all over the search zone and by now i've got the search zone kind of delineated it's about 13 acres send the drone up and you just shoot pre-program it to shoot overlapping photos and you go down and you sit in base camp and you put them all on a computer and you use that to search the terrain so that that was the really the uh the whole idea behind this trip and it was um a way of using technology in a, in a you know in a whole new way um to try to solve this mystery and so while everybody else was preparing for the summit, we, we kind of sacrificed that so that we could use some good weather to fly the drone, and, and we did. And we 
we we we did maybe something like a dozen flights from from the North Coal. So we went back up and and we had great weather and we got about 400 images of the search zone. And uh, then, um, okay, so this is where I kind of screwed up the story and it's sort of confusing. And by the way, everything that happens at altitude gets a little fuzzy <laughs> and muddled. Um, but as we were coming down from that, from from the aerial drone search, was when everybody else was going up, and 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 that was when we actually we left and we we got into uh, minivans and we and we and we drove out of base camp because you can drive right to your tent in base camp on the north side, and we went down to a little to a little town to a little Tibetan town, and we stayed in a hotel. And we just sat on our computers and we drank beer and we looked at the photos and tried to see um, what we could find. And yeah, can you tell the listeners exactly what you were looking for, Mark? We were looking for the, the body of Sandy Irvin. So yeah, we haven't really laid this out. And it's and it's weird when you spend you know three years of your life engrossed in a story, you end up in this place where you think that everyone knows what you're talking about, whereas most people don't, and a lot of people don't even know who Mallory and Irvin were. Um, but the the uh, the the outline of the story is that they were the the vanguard of. Uh, an expedition, a British expedition to the north side of Everest in 1924 that was trying to make the first ascent of the of the mountain. And that was the third attempt by the British. They had been there in 1921 and 1922 and then 1924. And um, they 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 were last seen, Mallory and Irvin, on June 8th, 1924, at approximately 28,200 feet, and again, I'm simplifying the story, um, still going strong for the top, according to Noel Odell, who saw them from, like, let's say 26,700 feet or something like that, lower down on the north face. And then the clouds came in and they disappeared and uh, they were never seen alive again. No one knew what happened, um, but, a, you know, a, a big kind of breakthrough in the story um, came in 1999 when Conrad Anker and members of the Mall Mallory and Irvin research expedition um, found Mallory's remains. The sort of the holy grail of this Everest mystery is a, a antique camera, which is called the Kodak VPK. And those guys are supposed to be have are supposed to have been carrying one of those cameras. And so the idea is that if 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 someone could find that camera, um, and the film is salvageable, and people have talked to, you know, technicians at Eastman Kodak, you know, guys that specialize in the, you know, 
in these old cameras and the type of film that they used back then who have said that uh, there's a high likelihood that that the, that the film would be salvageable. And so when I was pitching this story to to National Geographic, they're the ones who sponsored the expedition um, mostly. I, I said, hey, um, you know, imagine that we're successful and we find the camera and then there's this moment, you know, in some dark room where the images from the camera are materializing in the developing tray. And imagine that moment and then imagine that you're not there because you passed this up. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was, I think, a good way to pitch it. Because they were, you know, my editor just said, "Yeah, we can't take that what a pitch. We, we can't take that chance that uh, you know miss out on that moment." When Mallory was found in '99, it was all about seeing if that camera was in his pocket, and and it wasn't. And so ever since, the speculation has been that. Irvin must have been carrying it. And when you think about it and you kind of look at the facts, it really makes a lot of sense because um, Irvin was a photographer, like a trained photographer, skilled. He was he had an engineering sort of mechanically inclined type of background and a and a and a mind that was, you know, um, really well suited to to that kind of tinkering. Um, and also Mallory was really the face of the, of the British Everest enterprise. He was, you know, the, the world famous climber and the leader, and it would have made sense for Irvin to be taking pictures of him rather than the other way around. So afterwards, you know, the experts all said, yeah, you know what? Actually, it makes way more sense that Irvin would have the camera. But Irvin's body um, wasn't with Mallory when he was found. Um, he was found at, at 26,700 feet below this area known as the Yellow Band, um, up on the North Face on this big snow terrace. And um, a lot of clues there and details about what they found. But one, one clue was that he had a rope tied around his waist and it was a it was a strand about 15 feet long with a severed end and so you might you know if you if 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 you think about it you might expect that one of them fell pulled the other one off and the rope broke at some point but you would expect Irvin to be somewhere around there and um, and he wasn't, at least not that they could find. Um, while Tom and I were were talking about this story, um, he told me that he had been communicating with this Everest historian named Tom Hosell, and Hosell. Um, is one of the world's leading experts on the Mallory and Irvin mystery. He was the first person to go to Everest to do a Mallory and Irvin search in 1986, which was unsuccessful. And at this point, so 
you know, now it's 2018, you know, during my process of putting this together and investigating it. Um, Jose was 78 years old and he had been studying and trying to solve the mystery for about 40 years. And what he did was, among other things, he got a copy, a negative of an aerial photo of the yellow band, which was taken during a, a National Geographic mapping project by a guy named Bradford Washburn, who was the um, director of the Boston Museum of Science. And he made maps and he was a mountaineer and, um, you know, did a lot of expeditions and was an expert cartographer. And he um, created this this new Everest map that was um, based off these photographs that were taken, you know, from a Learjet, I think something like 40,000 feet, you know, 10,000 feet above the top of Everest. Hosel got, got the negative and then brought it to this photography studio. Um, they... It was complicated what he did, but he, I guess he, he blew it up. Then he took sequential micrographs of, of the image. And then he stitched those together to increase the resolution. And then he had it printed so that it's something like seven or eight feet long and like four feet tall. And he put it up on his wall and um, there was, uh, a member of the Chinese expedition that made the first ascent of the route that Mallory and Irvin were trying in 1924 in the Chinese were there in 1960 and they were the first people to actually get up the mountain. And on the, uh, on the summit day, one of the guys wasn't feeling good. His name was Xu Jing. And Xu Jing turned back, and according to his testimony, he decided to take a shortcut down through the yellow band and not go the way that everybody else was going and not go the way that he had gone on the way up. And while he was on that shortcut, he saw a body wedged into a crevice. And um, he described it in, in quite a bit of detail, and one of the details was that the body was wearing what he called braces, which is the British term for suspenders. And there's a lot of pictures of Sandy Irvin wearing suspenders, and it was part of his outfit. And the other thing about Xu Jing's testimony is that nobody else at that point had died yet up there. And so there was no one else that it could have been because the location that he described was really nowhere near where, where Mallory would be, would be found. And so what Hosel did with his giant picture of the yellow band uh, was like by studying it, he, he started this process of elimination where he tried to recreate what he thought Xu Jing's shortcut was and and he did it by eliminating routes that didn't look like they made sense because the, the way the yellow band works it's all horizontally banded so it's these 
horizontal ledges which are covered in rubble and snow and ice and then there'll be a little cliff and the cliffs some of them are are big you know like 100 feet tall in the lower part of the yellow band but then there's lots of little skinny ones that are like 15 feet tall 10 feet tall 15 feet tall and then in places there's little gullies that go in between them and that's where people climb so you go up you get on a horizontal break you go across the horizontal break till you get to a gully and then you climb up the gully so Hosel um, painstakingly dissected the, the thing, but he did it sort of as an academic exercise from his basement in Litchfield, Connecticut. And, uh, and he came up with uh, a route. And this is where he, you know, he thinks that Xu Jing went. Um, and then he matched it up. Then he started studying it under a microscope to try to find a crevice. And he found this thing, which he calls the oblong blob. <laughs> um, Tom and I went to his house and he showed us all of this. And he told us his whole theory. And I, I'll say that at first... I thought it was all just sort of like a figment of, of, of an old man's imagination. But Hosel is actually a really impressive guy and smart. And he's got 40 years into this and, um, you know, an athlete in his, in his own right. And, um, and he walked me through, Tom and I walked us through it step by step. And we got to the end. I thought, this is actually entirely credible. And he had this little circle drawn on the map and, and he had gotten um, GPS coordinates for that spot. And, and, and that night I said to Hosel, I said, what are the chances that, that Irvin, I said, what, what are the, what are the chances that, that Irvin is there? at those GPS coordinates. And Hosel said to me, he can't not be there. And, uh, and so we have GPS coordinates and we have drones and we have, um, you know, the makings of, of, of an expedition that could possibly make a, a discovery, find the body of Sandy Irvin and find the camera, get the film on the camera developed and figure out what happened. I know that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to me when I say it all now, especially because I came up with this whole idea and then was like, oh yeah, no, I'm actually going to do this. And then, and then I did <laughs> actually go um, and set out, you know, to try to figure all this out. Awesome. That's amazing. Do, was, was, was the objective of finding him just as intriguing as taking a crack at being up there and climbing the mountain? Was it, were, was it equal parts of motivation? It, it was. Um, and it, you know, the whole thing does sound far-fetched, but after we met after we met with Hosel, this is when the blood pact happened. 
Tom and I. Okay, so the night we had a crazy night with Hozel, and and there was a lot of drinking. And at the end of the night, Hozel Hozel comes out with this carafe, this like crystal decanter of some kind of wine. It's like white wine, and it's got this giant green leaf in the bottom of it, this crazy looking leaf. And he says, he says, yeah, this is Woodruff. It's a, it's a, it's an old German folk recipe. Hosel's German. Um, and, and it's a hallucinogenic herb and I've infused it into this wine and, and we're going to, we're going to drink this now. And, and, and we did. And this, this is at like one in the morning. And so, so things got crazy. The next day, Tom and I are sitting in Hosel's driveway, and Hosel had taken us out and showed us in the woods behind our his house where he gets the woodruff. And so we're sitting in his driveway. We're looking. I'm like, there's the patch of woodruff right there. And, and we're, neither of us are feeling that great at this point. We're going to drive home to New Hampshire. And Tom and I looked at each other. And without even really saying anything, we just went in for like the G.I. Joe grip hungover handshake. And, and, and we were like, this is a blood packed man. We're, you know, this is real. Like we're doing this. And um, we had already um, recruited um, another really important member of the expedition named Renan Ozturk. And Renan is the photographer filmmaker mountaineer and drone expert so as soon as the drone thing came up i reached out to renan i kind of told him the idea i kind of thought that he was gonna not be interested because i think like me he was one of these people who grew up kind of thinking like i'll never climb everest that's not really my thing i'm kind of like an anti-everest person um but he also kind of got sucked in by the idea and I remember us calling Renan, you know, like driving somewhere to get coffee and calling Renan from the car and, and telling him, dude, it's on. Like, Hozel's the real deal. Like, we've got something here. Like, this isn't just a completely harebrained scheme. And, uh, and so we, we felt like it, it was all credible. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I th I think that it was that it was, um, and so we when we when we flew the drone from the North Pole, we we took photos of what we called the Hosel spot, and there's supposed to be a crevice there, and there was a crevice. Looked like it went into the wall at an angle. And the drone couldn't see into it. The photos were incredibly high resolution. You could see pebbles sitting on little ledges, but you couldn't see into this darkened chasm. Um, but we figured out that's the spot. That's where we have to get to. And we saw a dead body of a Japanese climber near there. And that, that dead body was on the route. And, and this is kind of messed up. But when we looked at it, we thought, wow. Like when we get to that dead Japanese guy, that kind of marks the spot where you would leave the ropes and you would climb out into the yellow band and you would go to the Hozal spot. And because we couldn't see into the crevice, 
um, it turned into, and we couldn't see the body anywhere else in all the images that we had, it turned into um, this, this thing where somebody, presumably me, is going to have to go to that spot and is going to have to use GPS and leave the ropes and um and go out and uh and try to try to get there wow and so yeah i mean i guess at this point we're you know we're we're telling the whole story i can tell that last part you know if you if you guys want there's a lot of like there's a lot <clears throat> you know should we wait should we wait on that for so for the listeners so they can read about it themselves? i think they should i think they should read the book yeah, I think yeah, so too. Definitely like a bait and switch. And I guess I'll just say yeah. like, everybody would know if we yeah. if we did find the camera. But you know what I what I want people to know is that um, I wanted to do a lot more with this book than just than just tell this story that I've been describing. Yeah. I I wanted this to be. Um, I want I, what I wanted to do was kind of paint a portrait of what Everest is like today, and um, what's going on with the mountain, um, and who are the people that are climbing it, and why, and what's up with all the chaos, yeah. um, you know, and the stories that you hear about, and the in the conga lines of people, and the drama and in the deaths and when we when we went down and all the other people went up to the summit um we ended up in advanced base camp um on the day when something crazy like a thousand people tried to climb everest from both sides and um and because i was there in advanced base camp while that was happening and i was actually watching people with binoculars going up to the top and i was hearing all of the um radio communication about all the disasters that were happening and the people that were dying i was able to re report on all of that and then i spent months doing interviews and um, talking to people and eyewitnesses to all the crazy chaos that went down um, because of 11 people died um, in the spring of, of, of 2019, you know, in Into Thin Air, the, you know, the famous book about the, the tragedy in 1996, eight people died. Yeah. Um, this is a little different because it wasn't like one thing that happened to like all the people, but it was like people just getting picked off in, in all these random different ways. And, um, you haven't gotten yet to that part in the book, Tyler, but, um, a lot of my readers have told me that the, you know, the story of, of what happened, you know, the chapters called the day the day Everest broke, oh, yeah. um, people have told me that that's actually the, the strongest um, material in in the story, and um, and so like the pace of this book, I think, picks up 
as as it goes and um and you get to learn a lot about what's happening on on the mountain today and um and and some of it's a little um a little bit un, unexpected and and one thing that 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 I you know didn't anticipate was the solidarity that I was going to feel personally with all of those people because like everyone else I've heard all of the stories about what Everest is is like today and what a disaster it is and how the people are all just egotists and they're all there for the wrong reason and the trash in the mountain and so I had a lot of preconceived notions about what it was going to be like and those were those same notions that caused me to um sort of stigmatize it you know back in the 90s you know when I was you know a young aspiring climber in the 80s even and uh we got there and right off the bat I remember I remember sitting there with Renan and and Tom and looking at each other and just thinking this is so weird like this whole experience is so soulful like these people are so cool like they're all they're they're just scrappy and they're not CEOs and and they're kind of just like us and they're just trying to they're trying to do something they're trying to do something special and um and they're respectful and um and they're they're not here to trash the place and they don't want to be in a conga line it's just that sometimes you get really bad luck and there's only one good day and everyone goes on the on the same on the same day the, the way that renan chose to document that was um by taking all these selfies of doing these fist bumps with everybody that we would encounter on the trail and at one point he showed them to me i mean he's got hundreds of them and we're talking the climbing sherpas the tibetan yak herders the, the clients the the western guides the owners of the guide services everybody every photo it's like these fists and you see the faces on the people and they're all just lit up and yes. um and it's kind of this cool like joyful thing and um i think some people will, will hate me for kind of like pushing back against the everest haters because there is a lot of messed up stuff going on up there and there's a lot of things that need to be fixed but um you know the way that 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 everest climbers you know get dumped on i think is a little bit unfair and i think if you look at a lot of that hate i think 99.9% of it is coming from people who haven't been there and haven't seen um what it's actually like but that was an unexpected thing another thing was how hard it was to climb the mountain i had been led to believe it's just a walk up you clip your sender on the rope climbing sherpas will pretty much drag you up you just put on your oxygen mask it's no big deal it's just like being at disneyland you're just on a ride you just cruise up and uh and it turns out that it's actually a really um difficult endeavor and just to get to the point where it's time to go for the summit and to still be physically able to not be sick 
and to still have enough grit and determination to go for it is um, is something. And out of our team, when it when it came time to go to the summit, I mean, there were six of us in our team. And, and when it came down to, I mean, when we first showed up, everybody was strong and gung-ho and skilled and everything else. And I think we had, you know, quite a bit more experience than the, you know, the average sort of guided party on Everest. And, and when it came down to it, there were only three of us left. And, um, you know, the others had fallen by the wayside. I mean, no one died, but one, you know, one, one of our team members had to get evacuated. He had pulmonary embolism and um, another person had a uh, kind of like a p potential mini stroke or something like it. And um, there's just a, a lot of things that can go wrong. So when I was climbing, when I was climbing the mountain, I was continuously tipping my hat, not just to Mallory and Irvin, who were trying to do something that was way ahead of its time, like in it, in an era before the technology was really at the point where you could do something like that. I mean, they were, they were so out there um, as explorers. De decades, decades ahead of people yes, in that decades. respect. It's crazy. 30 years. Um, so yeah, full respect, but also all these people, because a lot of the people who are trying to climb Everest, like these scrappy dreamers that I'm talking about, there was one expedition where it was all Indian teenage, like underprivileged Indian teenagers um, who had no real background in mountaineering. And these, these kids are getting up the mountain. And, and, the, and the Northeast Ridge is kind of no joke. Like there's like rock climbing at, you know, 28,600 feet. And yeah, there's ropes, but you have to you have to climb it and it's pretty committing and scary and hard. And I've been climbing my whole life and I'm like, Oh wow. Like this shit is kicking my ass. And I'm thinking about these Indian teenagers, like, wow, like hats off kids, you know? And a lot of them, um, made it up and, uh, it's crazy. But, um, but anyways, I, uh, I, I felt a lot of respect for, for them and, um, and also, you know, just solidarity. And you could really feel it when we were all hanging out together in camp and kind of comparing notes. And, you know, one thing that you do on Everest endlessly is you talk about the weather. And um, we had so many conversations like that with so many people. And it really um, created a bond, which was one of the best things that I took away from this whole experience. Oh, that's great. So, Mark, what was it like to stand on top of the world? Is that pretty special? Um, you know, your head hurting so much that the actual, um, the actual being on top, you know, it, it was, it was kind of awesome, but uh, I was really tired, yeah. and so um, savor it as much as I wanted. Um, but the part, the part that really resonates for me was the sunrise and oh, nice. we were, uh, right below the third step. And I think the st third step is, I think it's like at around 28,600 feet and we had climbed all through the night and, 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 um, you know, at that point, 
I mean, I hadn't slept in like two and a half days. I hadn't eaten. And so it's a, it's a hard push because you do the, the climb to high camp one day. We got there at like 5 p.m. And then we're leaving at like 10 or 11. But you really can't sleep. So you just lay there and you're trying to rest. I couldn't really eat. And then, and then they're like, it's time to go. And it's 11 o'clock at night. And you, you're pretty haggard at that point. And then you go all through the night. And, and, and that's a really tough, tough night. And you can't really see anything and you're climbing and you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. But the whole time you're, you're saying to yourself, the sun's going to come up and you're going to get to see what this looks like. And, and it did. And it was the absolute perfect day. Um, you know, I haven't mentioned this, but we went up after everybody else had left. So everybody summited this past year for the most part on May 22nd and 23rd. And we went for the summit on May 30th and everybody was long gone and there was not a single other person on the mountain. So the pictures that everybody saw of the conga line and all that, we had none of that. We just had our own crew and, um, the Chinese had told us not to go. They tried to stop us. They said there was going to be hundred mile an hour winds. And there was no wind whatsoever. You could have lit a match and just stood there and held it. It was that calm and beautiful and perfect. And and so when the sunrise, when the sunrise finally happened, first of all, just the morale of being able to see the sun, which is an incredible thing. Um, but to be able to see that view that, um, in that kind of light. And to be in that place, I had a moment um, when I got up the third step with one of the Sherpas, uh, um, one of the climbing Sherpas, his name was Prakash. And, and he, uh, he and I kind of formed a particularly strong bond. And I got to the top of the third step and he helped me change my oxygen. And there's this final little like, triangular snow slope and it was just pink um like cotton candy from from the alpenglow and we kind of looked at each other and we did one of those fist bumps and we were like we're doing this and so it was it was kind of like what i was talking about where where you're like wow like this is this shit is actually happening you know we're 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 going to the top and everything's okay and yeah we're tired and whatever but like we're gonna get this done and uh so that was the the most meaningful part of it for me you know more so than than actually being on the top and that was the part really that i had always that i had always dreamed about and i and i think you know a big part of all of this for me and and the thing that has always been driving me is is just uh like curiosity about what's out there and 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 you know what's it like and you know other people had been to this place before but i had never been there and I had always wondered, you know, since I was a teenager, what's it like to be up there? And um, and it's it's rad. Yeah. Uh, and and it and it's kind of an awesome thing. And you you can see why, you know, people would become, you know, addicted to to high altitude climbing. And um, and so it 
it it really um it lived up to my expectations and uh you know i i guess i would also say that uh you know in terms of dealing with the cold i mean it was even though we had perfect weather and all that it was still it's very very cold you know that high up um and but like taking care of yourself and all the stuff that we do our whole lives as climbers that i've that i've done it's all the same it's the same stuff that you do when you're climbing Mount Washington in New Hampshire so that you don't get frostbite and, and, and everything, you know, that, that, that we learn, um, in terms of taking care of ourselves and surviving. It's all the same stuff up there. It's just like a little bit more, more committing and you're farther from home. Yeah. Man, Would you go really, back to search yeah. again? What's that? Would you go back to search again? I would say personally that I will not go back to search again. There are other people involved with this who I think will go back. I think other, other people will. Um, I actually think it's really cool that the, that the mystery endures, you know, that's what, that's what makes it such a powerful story. The, the whole idea that it doesn't have an ending. I tried to give it an ending in the book and I think that I, uh, I think that I, I've done it in a satisfying way and you guys can be the, you guys can be the judge. Um, so, you know, there will be more chapters. I, I think I've added one tiny little chapter or maybe just even a footnote to the story. Um, and I did figure a few things out that I share in the book that I think people will find interesting, especially people who are, kind of aficionados of this story. Like there is new stuff in there that, that people don't know, even experts on this. Um, but one thing that I've learned, I mean, I Everest, I, 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 I tallied this all up recently. I think I've been on a, something like 35 um, international expeditions. And um, some places, you know, I've gone back to over and over the place that I was just in down in Guyana, um, where there's these mountains called the Pui's. Yeah. I've been down there five times. I've been to Baffin Island up in Arctic Canada five times. Um, and there's a few other places like that, that I keep going back to over and over. But Everest, I think for me is, a, is a one and done. Yeah. And if I ever go back and climb another high altitude mountain, I think it will be a different one. But I'm 51 now, and so, you know, I'm, I think I'm climbing about as well, as, almost as, as I have, you know, as I was like 20 years ago. And part of that is me like rebelling against the whole idea that I'm getting old and I can't do it anymore, which is motivating me. But um, I think my next big endeavor might involve exploring under sail on my boat more so than hauling myself up some giant peak. And, um, and I am thinking about, um, stuff that I, you know, can do with my family. And that's one of the things that's really attracting me to sailing is that we can do it together and it doesn't have to be this, you know, this thing where I go and do my crazy thing and they stay at home. We can, you know, do it together. So that, that's, that's something I'm thinking about a lot right now. 
I love it. I love it. Well, Mark, really proud of you for for this accomplishment. It's uh, just awesome. And I'm excited to dive into this second part of your book. And yeah, do you have a, we want to be respectful of your time. Do you have a few more minutes to kind of just tell us a few more stories about some of your expeditions? But yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, mean, absolutely. By the okay. way, while we're on the subject, you have big news of your own, don't yes. you? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know. Hampton told me. I, uh, I'm like, I'm doing a podcast with Tyler. And uh, she's a big fan of yours. And she's like, he's going to be a dad. Yeah. I'm excited. Really excited. Yeah. That's incredible, dude. That's huge. That's bigger than climbing Everest. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, yeah, you have four kids. So I'll be uh, I'll be picking your brain, Mark. Yeah. You know, I any, thought any uh, any advice? I thought that I was in the old dad's club because my youngest is five. But yeah. you're you're even going to be deeper into that, but it is, it's a thing. <laughs> you know, what we call it. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of us and there's like, yeah. there's some legendary in the old dad's club and you're definitely yeah. one. Awesome. And what do you, what do you call yourself? A silverback or something like that? Um, yeah, there, that's, that's what they call us on the, uh, on the North face. Okay. Uh, when you start getting gray hair, um, but yeah, you know, you're you're in that category, although I don't think you have quite as much gray as No, it's coming in. But yeah, but even um even I mean, so we have to joke about this this stuff, but um even with my daughter Lilla, who's now fifteen, I was doing a talk at her school when she was in grammar school. So this is a while ago, because she's in high school now. And and I and I'd go to the school and I'd tell some stories like the stuff I'd tell you guys. And the kids were all being rambunctious and they weren't listening. And one of the kids, he said, hey, you guys, everybody be quiet. I want to hear what Lil's grandpa did. (laughs) 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 That's great. That's great. For for sure. But um, but it's but it's so awesome. And it's the uh, the greatest adventure, you know, of all. So, yeah, really stoked for you. That's awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Can we hear about like let's? How did all this get? How did all this start? You know, I I I um. I feel like I played a small, small, small part in, of it, being a member of the Crazy Kids of America Club. <laughs> Back uh, sure. Yeah, I don't know if that was. Yeah, that that's not even. That's not even small, but. Uh, I don't know. You you want to talk about? It? Yeah. Uh, you know, growing I up, growing up in Wellesley and spending time up in New Hampshire, Wildcat ski team. Yeah, I think as as a kid, well, we grew up, of course, you know, back during the analog age. So lucky, you know. Yeah. And I get good perspective on that now as a parent. And, you know, as you said, I have four kids. Twenty-two is the oldest, down to five. So I get to see what it's like, you know. For example, for my daughter who's 15, and like what that's like, and the the, the stuff they do on their phone, and the whole yeah. digital sort of world that they live in, and I just feel so lucky that I that I didn't grow up, you know, um, during this era, because when we were kids, I mean, the video games and stuff they just weren't that good. Yeah. So, so I figured out at a young age that you know if if i 
if I wanted to have fun, I just had to go outside of my house and that's where all the fun to be was to be had. And, um, and, and, and basically it was adventure. And, um, I figured out that, um, doing crazy things, dangerous things was a great way to get a thrill. And I was somewhat fearless as, as a, as a youth. Um, and the problem was that my friends, yourself included, weren't as crazy as I wanted you guys to be. And so I had to, um, motivate everyone. And, um, and I did that, um, I, I figured out that, that kids love to, to have incentive. And so that's, that was the impetus behind the crazy kids of America. And I don't know if you remember, but we had, we had ranks and we had kind of a hierarchy and you could work your way up through the ranks by, by doing, by doing crazy stuff. And um, our specialty with the crazy kids of America and all the crazy kids of America were members of the Wildcat ski team, you know, back in the eighties. And um, our specialty was um, pole vaulting. <laughs> Did it not for height, but for distance and particularly across um, icy rivers like the little river that goes past the, uh, the base lodge there at Wildcat. And, um, I think part of what made it so fun was that there was a lot of peer pressure. And I mean, some, I mean, I guess like a lot of this stuff is not politically correct and probably not okay. But back then, I mean, things were different, but, um, but the, the higher ranked crazy kids would do the crazy pole vaults. And then there was a lot of pressure on the younger kids who weren't as good and they had to do it too. And they wanted to, and they were, they were game, but as you know, cause you were there a lot of times it didn't go well <laughs> and uh, they wouldn't make it and they'd fall in the river. And, um, and so, so yeah, a lot of the, uh, I think it was like a love hate thing with a lot of the parents. They either really, really liked me where they really disliked me. And there were definitely some kids that weren't allowed to be in crazy kids of America. Um, but man, did we have some good times. And, um, I think the coaches sort of secretly gave it, you know, their tacit approval because at the end of the year banquet, they would let me do my own awards. They would give out their, their own awards, you know, hardest trier and best sport and, you know, whatever else. And then I would do mine and it was all in the, you know, the crazy kid ranks. And I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, I went to Burger King and I got the little Burger King crowns. And then on each one, I, I put the logo for the crazy kids of America, which I made up. And it was like a little pencil drawing of a kid pole vaulting over a river. <laughs> and, uh, and then I cut these out and I put it like right over like the Burger King thing. And so everybody got those, and um, then I gave out like parachute men. I would go to the gumball machines and that's where I would get most of the prizes. But I mean, it was amazing, like how you guys would rally and like risk your life, you know, to get a parachute man. 
Um, but that is um, really, you know, kind of where it started. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's fun to look back and to think about, you know, just the idea that I, that I think those days had a, had a formative influence on all of us. And, you know, then as I got older, the, um, it, it was really just a quest to find some of those same sublime experiences that we had when we were youth, you know, and we were just scrapping around out in the outdoors. And it was really right after crazy kids that I, that I discovered climbing. And, um, I would say that as a young person, I, um, I was, um, I think one of the reasons why I like to go out and, and sort of do crazy stuff was that it was a way for me to escape from the little rat that was running around inside my head. Um, because I was always, I was always rationalizing everything when I was a youth and I was, and I was grappling with sort of the same existential questions that we all struggle with. But I think I started really young with that shit when I was like 10 years old and I, and some of the stuff, you know, like for example, you know, just the whole idea of being mortal and like what happens to you when you die, like where do you go and things like that. Um, those are really thorny questions for me personally, but I, at a young age, I told myself, well, I will, I'll rationalize this. I'll, I'll dissect it and figure it out. I will, I will, I will find the answers. And I, and I went in really hard, um, trying to do that. And as we all know, some of these questions, are really, it's really, really hard to find answers. And actually, the answer is to not try that hard and to just be okay with not knowing. Um, but once I started down that path, um, you know, I ended up kind of like with the thought thought processes that I couldn't turn off, I couldn't make them stop, I couldn't, I couldn't get a break. And, um, and it kind of tormented me a little bit. And when I went out and did crazy stuff with you guys, and then when I started climbing, it would stop. Like when I was on the cliff, it was it was peace because all of that, that little rat that was running around in my head would stop running on its little treadmill. And I could just be in the moment on the cliff. And I, I mean, it took me a while to figure out that that was such an important part of what was going on. Um, but I, but I really think that that's a, a truth for me personally. And I think that was a big part of what sucked me into climbing. And then when I started doing bigger and bigger climbs, like when I went to Baffin Island, in 1996, we spent 39 days climbing the north face of Polar's nine, Polar Sun Spire. That was like a 39-day version of how I felt when I was clinging on the side of Cathedral Ledge in New Hampshire. And it was just awesome. And I think, you know, that experience in particular, you know, when I look back at my life, that was a, another one of these things that um, sort of created a little bit of a paradigm shift in the way that I 
kind of looked at life and my place in it and, and who I was. I remember coming back from that trip and kind of looking at things a little bit differently just because for the first time ever in my life, I had, I had been, I had been able to spend more than a month just living in the moment. And, um, and it was something that, uh, that I, that I don't think that I could have experienced otherwise. And, um, and that, and that really, and that really helped me and, um, helped me to figure out, you know, how to be more like that when I wasn't up on the mountain or when I wasn't, when I wasn't climbing. Um, and there's also just, um, a huge amount of joy to be had when you're out in crazy places in the middle of nowhere in places where no one's been and the, the things that you see, the, the beauty, um, and the camaraderie that you have, you know, with your teammates, like the bonds that you form are so strong. And one thing I learned about climbing early on is I, I could go climbing with someone and especially it was like kind of a crazy climb where there was, you know, wild stuff going on. And after, you know, a day on the cliff, I could form a bond with someone that was as strong as something that would take years outside of, you know, like that whole realm. And, um, and so, you know, my partners and the, and the, and the people that I did this, this stuff with became, um, you know, kind of my tribe and, um, and that, um, was another thing that just continued to suck me in deeper and deeper. And now, you know, I mean, it's been, I guess, yeah, I guess it's like about 36 years since I started climbing and, um, and adventuring and all that. And, uh, and it's just as strong as ever. It's the same thing. And, um, and it's been, you know, it's been guiding me along this whole time. And the only thing that I think has really changed fundamentally is that I, I figured out that it doesn't have to be climbing, that there's lots of other, other ways to find what I'm looking for and to, to, you know, to find that solidarity, you know, with, with my, with my tribe and, um, you know, to experience and explore the world. And so, you know, it could be caving, it could be trekking through the jungle like I just did, um, could be sailing. And also importantly, I think that, that I can find a lot of that just in intellectual pursuits um, like writing these, these books and telling these stories and, um, trying to communicate things to other, other people. You know, I don't know. Sometimes it's better than others. I don't know how well I've communicated here, but all of that stuff is something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of and I'm, and I'm, I'm like really heartened by the idea that I can, I can just explore stuff, you know, from my armchair when I'm old through books and, and research and just thinking about things and, you know, trying to figure things out.
it seems like you had a really you really enjoyed yourself down there in South America. Where was it? Uh, Guana? Guyana? Guyana. Guyana. Yeah. And the the quest for this elusive frog that seemed like a really amazing trip. And I I loved hearing about uh, Mole Man and you know getting up get climbing up that cliff and um, I, the scientists that you had had to help out. That was just a, a wonderful story. And you know. Yes, yeah, so we went back to that same area and um, hung out with those same guys, those Akawayos, Mole yeah. Man. Yeah. No, Can you tell the Mole Man story? It is just for that one. It is just for that one story. Well, um, I guess that was in 2003. And we were on an expedition. This place is called the Pacaraima Mountains. And um, they're, they're tapuis, which are these tabletop mesas down in the, uh, in the northern fringe of the Amazon jungle. And the Pacaraimas run along the border of uh, Guyana, Brazil, and Venezuela. And um, they, they're surrounded by this impenetrable jungle. And... Um, and we were trekking through that jungle trying to get to the base of the cliff. And we were, we were with a scientist and we were looking for a new species along the way. And uh, on the final section of the trek, we ended up in this terrain that was, um, it, it was mountain climbing, but on vegetation and slime. And we ended up in the, at this one wall where it was a cliff and it was probably like 30 or 40 feet tall and it was completely covered in slime. And I mean, actual, like the, whatever the definition of slime is, this is what it was. And it, 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 uh, it's something that you can find at certain elevations in the cloud forest. We saw it on this last expedition and there were uh, some vines hanging down the cliff. So we tried to go up the vines, but nothing is really that strong there. Even the trees, they just snap off. And my partner, Jared, and Ogden and I kept taking turns. And we only, we, no one managed to get higher than about 15 feet up. And we were with these uh, Akawayos. They're the, you know, the native inhabitants there. And... Uh, they thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen in their lives. Like when the vines would rip off and we'd come sliding down the slime and we'd slam onto the ledge. And I mean, we, we really didn't think it was funny, but they, uh, they loved it. And at a certain point, well, I just, I took off my harness and this guy, Edward, uh, his name's Edward Jameson. He's kind of looking at me a little funny, like, Oh, why are you taking your harness off? And then I just handed it to him and I was like, yeah, dude, guess what? You're up. You're going to give this a go. And, um, and he, you know, good sport that he is was like, Oh, hmm, okay. Well, you want me to go up the slime wall and there's no vines left. So like, what am I going to do? Well, um, Edward is very resourceful and, um, I don't still don't know how he did it. I bet you at that point, I probably couldn't have gotten a foot off the ground. He went up the wall like a gecko <laughs> and he's never done any like real climbing like that. 
and I was telling him as he went to like take slings and cinch them off around like little bromeliads growing out of the, out of the wall. There's no way any of that stuff would have held. And what happened was he got to this spot where, um, well, he basically, he made it up the slime wall and at the top of the slime wall, there was an overhang of vegetation, literally a cornice of rotten veg over his head. And at this point he had burrowed his arms in up to the shoulder all the way into the veg. And I think he, he told me that he was holding on to like little roots inside the mountain and um and he and he started taking his head and he started headbutting the cliff and we thought oh he's lost the plot like you know he's trying to bash his own head in like someone would do if they were like really having a bad day but what we didn't realize was that this is how you burrow through a vegetation overhang and at one point he actually started biting the wall and he, and he, and he was biting patches of moss and spitting them out to try to chew a hole in. And, um, I mean, it was a long process, but that's the mole man story because he shoved his head in, then he shoved his shoulders in and he just kept squirming. One of the last things that happened was, well, he was in there and, um, and he was like shaking his legs, kind of like you would do if you were, if you were swimming or if you were trying to get like out of a swimming pool without using your arms, because his arms were at his side and were like jammed in there. And um, he was kicking his legs so hard, and one of his shoes flew off. We were already way up on a cliff, so it just—I saw it flying by in the mist. Never saw it again. Um, and eventually, his legs disappeared. And he burrowed and chewed a hole through the veg. He popped out on top. When when he made it through, he yelled so loud that the story goes, and I don't know if this is actually true, that they heard him back in his village, which is 40 miles away. I, think, I don't think that's actually possible, but that's how loud he yelled. And it was definitely like a cry of, of triumph. And probably a primal release of fear or whatever, um, but but uh, but he did it, and um, and it was absolutely awesome. Um, legendary guy. I just got to hang out with him again, um, which was fabulous. And really, the best part of the expedition was spending um, time with these these Akawaios. And you know, I was saying before, I've been down there a bunch of times now. And every time I, I, I work with these same guys, you know, and, and you know what, they, they live in a, in a, in a very different world than we do, but this spirit that I'm talking about, I mean, we could call it the spirit of adventure. Like you see it in these guys and you, you could see it in all of us. And I think it's, it's, um, it's just kind of part of our humanity and it's a, and it's a really great part of it, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's something that, uh, you know, that I, that I love to share you know, with other people, especially with, you know, with some of these different cultures, you know, that we get to interact with when we do these, these trips. That's great. And you, and eventually you found this elusive frog, right? Um, well, uh, so we have done a number of these expeditions now and, um, on, um, on some of the expeditions, well, all told, 
I mean, the scientist that we work with, Bruce, I don't know, he's found like dozens of, of, of new species. The part of the, uh, of the story on this recent one that I haven't told yet is that we couldn't find the damn frog. <laughs> and we knew what it was. We heard it. We saw it. <laughs> we almost caught it at one point. Um, but on this most recent expedition, it proved elusive and, um, and never ended up in our grasp. Um, and there was some crazy stuff that we did. We climbed this huge cliff and, um, we had Alex Honnold there as our master climber rope gun. And we had this amazing, um, Venezuelan Tapui expert climber named, um, Federico, uh, Pisani. And, um, the three of us did some crazy stuff up on that wall. And there were definitely times where, you know, I thought to myself, wow, like I'm really going to some extreme lengths here to find a frog. <laughs> like, I, is this really worth it? So, you know, some of the s same thoughts, you know, that I had on Everest and, and some of the, uh, the other expeditions that I've done, but all the funnest stuff in life seems to be dangerous unfortunately and um so i guess that's just kind of how it goes hey this has been great mark uh yeah like i was saying before really proud of you and man it's been fun to follow along yeah like you were saying i think when your trip to baffin island when you came back from from that trip I remember speaking to you what was that in the mid 90s you know yeah yeah i went i went a bunch of different times but uh the big crazy one that I was telling you guys about was in 96. Okay, yeah. I mean, I remember you coming back from that and just, you know, your whole life tra tra trajectory just was, you know, you're on a new plane and just hearing the stories about that. How, you were on the wall, what, 38 days or something? Yeah, 39 days. Yeah. Living in Port Ledge. Um, huh. Yeah, I've I'd love that shit. We just did a little mini version of that on this recent expedition, but uh, yeah, I don't know how many more of those. Yeah, got yeah. in me. But I'll never forget you saying because you, you had to go like uh, in the late winter, early spring. You know when the the some, some the ocean was still frozen, right? But then on the way out, you said the ocean was starting to melt, and you were on skidoos, and you were uh, there were parts of of just exposed water you had to like. You know, gotten these skidoos over. There were leads in the ice, and the ice was breaking up. Yeah. And if it fully broke up, we would have been stranded in there until yeah. all of the pack ice had moved out, which can be a long period. But then, then it becomes impassable, and you can't really go by boat, and you can't go by snowmobile. And there were these big leads in the ice that would go from one side of the fjord to the other for miles what the Inuit would do is they would ride back and forth on their skidoos and they had these big like kind of um, gaffer poles with hooks on the end and they would grab floating chunks of ice and they'd corral them and then line them up so it was like this bobbing bridge and then they'd get a bunch of speed up and the water's like 2,000 feet deep or whatever and a snowmobile with this giant sled on the back loaded with climbing gear, you know, I mean, it's going to sink to the bottom like a lead weight. And we just go bloop and cruise across. Um, but we got out of there and the Inuit hunted 
seals and then they'd collect driftwood and they'd have these fires because there's no trees in Baffin, but they'd collect driftwood that had floated up from like Newfoundland or, you know, um, wherever. And they would build fires and then find these big flat rocks and put the flat rocks on top and then they'd fry up seal steaks. And um, we they'd hunted caribou. We ate polar bear. They would fish. And uh, same kind of thing that I was talking about with the Akawaios, just being out on the land um, with those guys was, again, really the highlight. Um, you know, we should probably just spend more time doing that and less time being up on these cliffs, <laughs> dangling and, you know, doing that whole part. And you wrote a guidebook about that, about Baffin Island and the climbing that up there, up there? I did. Yeah, that was the first book that I wrote. And um, it's climbing, trekking and skiing in, in Baffin. And I, I think I spent, spent like seven years working on that. I went up there five times. I don't know why I did it. It was unwise, but somebody had to do it. And at the time, I had the knowledge and, and I had the expertise and I had the information. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And um, there's still a few copies left. Um, yeah, but, but I, you know, it, it, it was not a uh, commercially successful enterprise, but it forced me to get to know Baffin very, very well. And, um, and that, um, is, is definitely something that I cherish. And, um, and I'm currently scheming to go, to go back up there. And I actually have two different trips, uh, that I want to do up there in the, in the near future. And I think, you know, I, I, uh, like when, when it's time to, uh, to quest after, you know, the next project, I, um, I try to just kind of look within and think about what I want to do. Like, what's my dream, the next thing that I'd really like to do, and then try to figure out how to turn that into, um, you know, some kind of workable enterprise. And, and right now, I can't stop thinking about the Arctic. And so I think that that may be, you know, where I'm going to go next. That's what, that's what I want to do. That's great. That's great. Well, Mark, we've taken a ton of your time and thank, you know, thank you so much. We appreciate it. We, we didn't even we didn't have time to talk about your, you know, New York Times bestselling book, The Impossible Climb, but well, I mean, part of the problem is that you guys ask me questions and then I just talk, you know, way too much. No, not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Just the right amount. That was absolutely awesome, Mark. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. Well, um, no, it's an honor. And I'm so glad we finally got to to do this. And I feel like I could talk to you guys endlessly. So we'll have to... We'll continue the conversation, you know, maybe even not on a podcast, just, you know, over some beers and we'll catch up and um, definitely look me up the next time that you're back here in the, in the Shire, Tyler. And you too, Peter. I don't know where you are. I'm in Calgary, Alberta. Oh, really? 
Yeah, so if you're ever out this way, okay, definitely and let me know in the, advance. What's the connection between you two? That's a great question. So I used to organize the Calgary and Edmonton bike shows here. And we had Tyler up to talk five, six years ago, something like that. And then we stayed in touch and we did a, we ran a couple little bike tours out of Banff and had a lot of fun doing that. And then we, uh, we thought, well, we can't just get together once a year and talk about adventuring and bikes. We should, uh, why don't we start a podcast and have other people tell us their stories. And here we are. It's worked out awesome. We've yeah. How long? Incredible people on. How long have you guys been doing it? About a year. Yeah, a little over a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's been a lot of fun interviewing a lot of great people, great stories, you know. And uh, yeah, you're at the top of the list, Mark. And so, yeah, we appreciate you jumping on and speaking with us. Yeah. No, it's it. Like I said, it's an honor. Sorry it took so long, but um. I appreciate you guys, you know, supporting my work and listening to my crazy ramblings. And before we let you go, where okay. can people follow along with you, social media, whatever websites, and where can they get the third poll? Um, well, they can get the third poll anywhere that you get books. And so I would, I would, you know, it's coming out on April 13th, so they could go to their local bookstore. You know, hopefully they have it. They could call ahead and check. Um, but, you know, any of the uh, online retailers are going to be are going to be carrying it, you know, like all the main ones, any, any ones that you can think of. Um, and, yeah, if they go to my website, which is, you know, just marksin.com, I think I have links on there. So you can so you can order it. And um, and then, yeah, you can just Google my name and they can follow along and find me. And um, I'm embracing the social media more and more. It seems to be sort of integral to like what we all do. We're trying to, you know, just be freelance adventurers. It, it's part of it. So um, so I'm going for that. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling a lot of stories. So like anybody's curious, you know, what I'm up to. Instagram and Facebook are the ones that I use, and I think they could find me pretty easily. That's great. And then you also have a guiding company, Senate Mountain Guides. That's in the. Yep, Senate Mountain Guides is is uh, actually going strong. We we just had a great winter season, despite COVID, which uh, which is awesome. We saw a lot of growth in uh, avalanche education, in particular, and backcountry skiing as you guys know is just exploding popularity is like through the roof here in the white mountains and so that's really nice like just feeling good about the fact that we had a good season after everything that we've been through over the past year and um and i got vaccinated and my wife is vaccinated and um you know we're scheming we're, we're heavily into sailing and we have a sailboat, so we're we're working on that right now, and thinking about getting boat into the water, and what we're going to do this summer, and uh, family adventure, and uh, and then just yeah, hopefully yeah, a, a brighter sort of a brighter outlook for 2021 and 2022, getting out of this. But one thing I will say is that COVID. COVID forced me to stay at home basically for a year 
and I hadn't done that since literally ever, <laughs> ever since I was a kid. And um, now I'm yearning to to travel and to get back out, you know, exploring the world. But I spent a ton of time exploring here in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, even just in the woods outside my house, because I live right on the edge of the National Forest. I mean, I went, I would go out like day after day and just trek around, not on trails and just see what I could find. And then I was home always with my family. And it was actually an awesome thing to go for a year, not flying on planes and not constantly going from one place to the next. And so just taking a little bit of a break from the rat race. And I, I don't mean to like sort of diminish what's happening in the world right now. And obviously it's like tragic what we've all been going through, but more just to point out that at least for me personally, there has been a bit of a silver lining in terms of life slowing down a bit and um, feeling like a little bit less of a rat race. And so I, I've appreciated that. I want it to be over, but, uh, but I have, I have appreciated it. I feel the same way. I'm totally excited to get it behind us. But looking back, there's a lot of fond memories that my family and I wouldn't have had it not been for it. So it's a weird feeling, but you know, it's I'm glad to hear other people did the same thing and found some positives. Yeah, and it just, you know, I think it's um sort of it's it's been hard and it's you know, in some ways I'm feeling kind of beat down, but when when we finally like get released from this, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go big. <laughs> a lot of us are. I think so too. I love it. <clears throat> well, Mark, say hi to Hampton and the kids and uh, yeah, man. Awesome. Great to see you. Great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, look forward to hopefully yeah. seeing you time soon. Thanks, man. Good luck. So when, um, when is the new member of the family arriving? Early September. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Holy shit, dude. Okay. Well, um good luck with all that i'll be sending good vibes and uh and then of course we'll hang out next time you're back here awesome awesome thanks for doing this mark okay yeah no thank you guys it was a lot of fun and um yeah good luck with all of your endeavors and uh we'll talk to you later thanks a lot be well okay see ya see you buddy thank you see ya Another big thank you to Mark for spending so much time with us and um, we need to have him back. Like there's just so many stories to, to tap into there uh, that we need to hear about. And not only does he have the great stories, but he's a great storyteller. He's is equally a good a storyteller uh, in, in book format. So check out his book. Uh, it is called The Third Pole. Uh, his previous book is called The Impossible Climb, which was chronicling Alex Honnold's uh, free solo um, Ascent of El Cap, which is also a crazy book and totally worth reading. Thank you everybody for listening. As always, if you're able to lend some support to the growth of the podcast by sharing it, liking it on social media, um, comment, interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. It's adventureaudiopodcast.gmail.com and give us a positive review or a rating or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you find the show. Thank you. And we will be back soon.